It's wonderful to be with you. It's wonderful to be able to open up God's word with you. And I invite you to turn to Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3, the first seven verses are our passage. The sermon title this morning is The Judgment We've Been Waiting For. The Judgment We've Been Waiting For. Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let's begin our time by reading the passage in full. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Woe to the city of bloodshed, completely full of deception and pillage. Her prey never departs. The sound of the whip and the sound of the rumbling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging and swords flaming and spears flashing, many slain, a mass of corpses. And there's no end to dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, The charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares Yahweh of hosts, and I will uncover your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw detestable filth on you and display you as a wicked fool and set you up as a spectacle. And it will be, that all who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will console her? Where will I seek comforters for you? That's heavy, isn't it? What a passage. Well, you're ready for this passage because in Nahum chapter 2, we learned about God's judgment on wicked Nineveh and we understood that it would begin with the floodwaters with a catastrophic rise and rush of water that would break the city walls, that would dissolve entire buildings, starting with the king's palace in Nineveh. But if the flood wasn't enough of a miraculous judgment against Nineveh, God would then direct Assyria's greatest enemies, the Babylonians, through the breached walls into the heart of the empire where the worst was yet to come for those remaining Ninevites, those Assyrians who themselves thrived on all kinds of violence. They were the ones destined to become the victims of violence by the hands of even greater evildoers than themselves. Nahum prophesies here in chapter three about the shame that soon awaits this proud city of Nineveh who can put up no fight anymore, but will simply be swept away in the deluge of water and blood. What we read in chapter 3 depicts the aftermath of the flood, the aftermath of this siege. Nineveh's great fall is on full display, but the tragic end of Nineveh is heightened in the minds of Nahum's readers by this depiction of Nineveh's great power in war. And so there's a divide between verses 1 and 4 and verses 5 and 7. Verses 1 to 4, which we read, focus our attention on Nineveh's power and their violence when they were the ones besieging other nations. But verses 5 to 7 depict what will happen when the great Assyrians are themselves besieged, emptied from the inside out. Now, if you're like most readers, like most Sunday attendees, and if you're new here, or if you're new to the book of Nahum, then you probably didn't show up here for a message of doom and gloom. You were looking for an uplifting message, something different than death, destruction, and divine judgment. 
And as we've been teaching through Nahum, you're probably wondering why so many details of judgment keep being proclaimed. Yet another chapter of judgment from Nahum? Where's the happy message? What's going to carry me out of this room and float me through at least Monday? That's the question that we often ask as we're going deeper and deeper into Nahum's proclamation of judgment on Nineveh. So the question that lingers in the air as we set out chapter 3 is the one that you probably have. What more is to be gained in this chapter and in this message that God wants us to understand about his judgment of Nineveh? The question is whether another message from Nahum about Nineveh's judgment is necessary for our good. And yes, of course, we trust that it is. And I want to show you from the passage that this is for our good, this very passage here. And it's this, Nahum 3, 1 through 7, gives us a window into divine retribution, divine retribution, into the justice of God, God who weighs the scales of justice with the sins of his enemies on one side of his scales, and then punishes them with the exact measure of their crimes. Nahum teaches us that the proud Assyrians are soon going to be handed their sentence. And it's a terrible, terrible death sentence. But it's a sentence that befits their terrible, endless atrocities. What they have perpetuated against their surrounding nations will now be meted out in divine retribution. So let me give you the outline for our talk. Nahum's window into divine justice offers us the two sides of God's perfect scales. First, in verses 1 to 4, he weighs Nineveh's international sins. He weighs Nineveh's international sins. But secondly, in verses 5 to 7, Nineveh, or Nahum balances Yahweh's scales with Nineveh's international shame, international shame that matches their international sins. God watches sun- sinners He weighs their sins, and he metes out justice in the perfect way, in the fury of his wrath. That's what God does. Now, the question is, where is Israel in all of this picture? Where is Israel, since we're focusing so much on their enemies? And more to the point for us, where are we in this picture of Nahum chapter 3? We're believers who today, we see so much evil around us, but it's no longer the Assyrians. The Assyrians are dead and gone. The Babylonians are dead and gone. So what about us as we come to this historic act of divine retribution? What does it mean for us as we brace against this onslaught of evil doers, wicked sinners all around us today? You know, by the way, if you have been paying attention to the news, then you know that we're surrounded even by the most family-friendly evildoers, right? Think of the Walt Disney Company. Think of the onslaught to our children, even from those with little Mickey ears. So what's our vantage point as we come to this passage? Well, we're in the spectator seat. And Nahum wants us to get ready for the big show. This is the big show of something that happened thousands of years ago. But God will always crush his enemies under his feet in the winepress of his wrath. And we get insight into that in this passage. So we grab our programs, we pull out our binoculars, and we get ready for this big show. God is about to enter into the scene and utterly destroy the destroyers. So Nahum wants us to get ready for these verses. So we start by taking a look at this laundry list 
of Nineveh's international sins in verses 1 to 4. It's a deeply disturbing list. We have this side of God's scale of justice that is just weighing more and more. It is measuring the evil doing until it seems it's going to fall off the chains. Verse 1 opens with this exclamation of fear and dread. Woe. Woe. And what follows then in verse 1 is worthy of the divine curse that is pronounced by this word woe. Nineveh is called what? The city of bloodshed. The city of bloodshed because it's known for shedding innocent blood. The blood of its murder victims cries out to God like Abel's blood cried out from the ground uh, in Genesis chapter 4. Now sometimes we think it's an overstatement to say that a whole city full of people could be characterized for certain traits, especially sinful ones. It seems like a vast generalization, but that's exactly what Nahum writes here about the Ninevites. And to be sure, it's not just the Ninevites of the next generation that, that Nahum is prophesying 50 or 70 years ahead. It's his generation, it's generations past and past and past, generations upon generations of the city full of bloodshed. 200 years prior, there was a king of Assyria who illustrated his bloodthirst for his enemies in one particular battle, and he said this, I quote, I slew their warriors with the sword. I piled them up. I covered the wide plain with the corpses of their fighting men. I dyed the mountains with their blood like red wool. I erected pillars of skulls in front of his town, destroyed his towns, tore down their walls, and burnt them down. End quote. That was 200 years before Nahum's time. This is a city perpetually filled with blood. In fact, the next description helps us understand Nineveh's evil a little bit more. It goes back generations also. Nahum describes the city as completely full of deception and pillage. On the one hand, you have political deception. Political deception, which we see all through uh, ancient Israel's past dealings with Israel. The story of 2 Kings 17 and 18 really helps us understand that in the international scene, the Assyrian government often promised a nation all the bounty possible and yet just turned it around in uh, deception. And with full deceit, full treachery would completely dishonor the people that they had said they would protect with resources. They would just trick them into captivity. Second Kings 17 and 18 recounts how Assyria besieged at one point Samaria to the north and began to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and exiled the people. Well, in those passages, 2 Kings 17 and 18, we see Israel's northern king, northern king Hoshea was only allowed to stay in power because the Assyrians let him. And how did they let him? Well, if he just paid them a yearly tribute. So he would have to pay in order to stay as a quote-unquote sovereign of his own kingdom. And Assyria would do this. They would trick weak leaders like Hosea into making these treaties of help. But if that treaty were ever broken, that's the concern. For one reason or another, like in Hosea's case, if you recall the story there in 2 Corinthians, uh, I just said 2 Corinthians, 2 Kings 17 and 18. I do that a lot, don't I? One time I was talking about another book and I called it 2 Korean. I don't know how this happens, <laughs> but it does. I don't know. Not enough coffee or maybe too much. But Hosea in 2 Kings 17 and 18, he's trying to barter a treaty with the king of Egypt. And of course, Assyria finds out about that 
And so it's going to be swift destruction for his kingdom. Now, there's not just political uh, deception that's happening. There's also economic, and economic violence ensues. Any time that, that Assyria swoops in with some kind of a treaty that goes a little wrong, then there's pillage. The Ninevites were robbers. They built up their wealth by plundering the weak. And you see an example similarly in 2 Kings 18, verse 14. In this scene, we have King Hezekiah of Judah who tries to stop this siege of the Assyrians down in the south. Well, what is Hezekiah going to do to restore peace in Judah? Again, he tries to pay off the king of Assyria. How does he do it? With about the equivalent of 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. Hezekiah has to literally pillage his own treasuries and pillage the gold off of the doorposts of their temple in order to pay off this Assyrian king. That's a pillaging that goes from Assyria into the Israelite power, and this sovereign will end up helping them to do this pillage. And this is just to scrape another, uh, together enough cash to buy off these wicked rulers. Do you think it works? No, it never works because there's always a little bit more that Assyria wants. And Nahum knows his history. Nahum knows that Nineveh, which represents all of Assyria, is full of bloodshed, full of deception, full of pillaging in every generation. And that's the sense of the next phrase, her prey never departs. The Assyrians never lacked victims. Her prey never departs because they always had enough because they were always seeking out others whom they could devour. As the generations continued, these fearless predators would produce this endless supply of prey. Well, these Ninevites are war criminals, but even more so, we could side with one commentator that calls them serial killers. These are serial killers. Now look at verses two and three. This is a description of the violence that Nineveh perpetuated in other nations. We're just adding to the scales on the side of the international sins of the Ninevites. We haven't gotten to the other side yet, have we? But we are weighing it down. The sound of the whip cracks on the backs of defenseless citizens. Like the Israelites, they're driven out of their homeland. They're even stripped of their skin. The sound of the whip strikes the horses who who make haste to bring the warlords in for conquest. The next phrase, the sound of the rumbling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots. These are all cause for the earth to quake under the effects of war that's coming, the driving rumbling sound of war that is stirring in the quiet air of a nation that is unprepared. This is the work of the Assyrians as they ride toward their next victim for the sick pleasure of yet another conquest. Verse three says, horsemen charging, swords flaming, spears flashing, this quick succession of terms. Talks about the horsemen that, that charge, they make their way toward their enemies with unsheathed swords, ready spears that glimmer in the sun, ready to strike like lightning in every direction. And so the tragic results follow in graphic detail. In fact, it's really disturbing, isn't it? What's the result of the Assyrian bloodlust? 
many slain, a mass of corpses. And there's no end to dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. Can you imagine Nahum writing this? This repeating description describes brutal slaughter in the most horrific and grotesque of ways. This is to talk about battlefields and also cities within their walls that as far as the eye can see, as far as the walls reach, they're littered with the fallen, with their victims. Seems to be no life left, according to Nahum's description. And bodies then are piled in heavy clumps, which just portrays the brutality of their murderous intent. If any man were to survive, then he would have to stumble over the bodies to just try and fight a little more or to escape. What a horrific and hopeless situation when the Assyrians ride into town. Well, keep in mind that Nahum's words in chapter 3 are the words of judgment on Nineveh, the city of bloodshed. So let's go back to what we just read and reread it in another light. Let's reread verses 2 and 3 as judgment against Nineveh. Because that is, as you see, a graphic, horrendous description of the fall of Nineveh, which has just been described in chapter 2. This city of bloodshed will suffer the ultimate bloodshed. Violence is coming upon the violent. So take everything that Nineveh has done in this list and see where Nahum is going with the descriptions. As you scan through verses 2 and 3, the sound of the whip now is heard cracking on the backs of the oppressors. The sound of the rumbling of the wheel, galloping horses, bounding chariots. These are the sounds of war that are rumbling toward Nineveh, toward their walls. And the Babylonians then are going to march right in once the deluge passes through. And as the water is dissolving their walls, in come through the Babylonians with the rumbling of the wheel, the galloping of their horses and their bounding chariots. So, Here's a question. Remember how in the previous chapter in Nahum 2, verse 4, the Ninevites are racing madly in their chariots like lightning flashing, getting into position for whatever battle um, is they've just spotted on the horizon. It's coming, so they need to get up to their ramparts. Well, how do we picture that type of flurry of activity now? All of the, the shininess in the sun of getting the metal where it needs to be to defend the walls. Well, all of their bounding to defend themselves is over. It's the enemy that's described that way, their enemy. And now the enemy of the Assyrians. They are the fallen. What's going to be left of the Assyrians when a bigger and greater army dashes them into pieces? When lightning strikes like the blink of an eye against them? Well, only death. And that's the idea. Many slain a mass of corpses. This is Nahum speaking about the fate of the Ninevites. Bodies of the Ninevites would be piled up upon each other in the city squares. Remember the markets where, where the, their own chariots would race through, even cutting their own people down to defend themselves. Now it's just a pile of corpses. Their flourishing gardens are overfilled with them. Their once profitable and beautiful canals are now stacked with blood. Well, the violence that Nineveh reveled in in their past will result in their demise in the near future, and that's the prophecy. Nineveh's very clearly going to get a taste of its own medicine, and the city is never going to recover from that. Those mass murderers 
will be murdered in mass. Well, it's a concern at this point for many of us why God would then seem to act like this mass murderer through the hands of the Babylonians. Why this type of punishment? What is the motivation? And verse 4 helps us with this. Again, we're stacking up the, the list of international sins. And what do we find? The real capstone of them all in verse 4. All because, why does this happen? All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Of all the reasons to judge Nineveh, spiritual harlotry is the worst crime in God's eyes. Trading the worship of the one true God for witchcraft is the ultimate atrocity, and it always leads to all the other evils. It's a spiritual crime that leads to all other crimes. The false religions of the ancient Near East were marked by all forms of divination, all forms of sorcery, seeking the help of demons rather than the one true God to achieve success, to achieve health, battle victory, whatever. And Assyria's demon worship even characterized Israel at the time of the prophets. You see mentions of this with Jezebel and her worship of Baal, Ashtaroth, 2 Kings 9, verse 22, memorializes Jezebel in the same words that now Nineveh's memorialized with so many sorceries and harlotries. That's the effect of this type of spiritual domination, this sorcery transfer onto Israel. And a century later, 2 Kings chapter 10 gives us another disturbing situation, this time about King Ahaz. And he makes a copy of an Assyrian altar and places it in the temple so that Judah can worship the false gods the way the Assyrians did. This transfer of harlotry, this transfer of spiritual adultery. The sorcery of the Assyrians seduced Israel. And it started to take up place in their hearts and their minds and their temple. And if you want that direct connection between Assyria and Israel for this spiritual harlotry, look at 2 Kings 16, 18. There you see the seduction of the king of Assyria as motive for what befell them spiritually. So spiritual harlotry of the Ninevites, that played a big role in the spiritual apostasy of Israel. And that's because spiritual seduction is charming. It's seen as favorable. It's popular. It has a wide appeal. And think about that today. Is it any wonder that movies about witchcraft are box office hits? We throw money at white magic. We throw money at fantasy games. Any of this type of entertainment, even in our gaming, is just this allure, this seduction of that which seems favorable in our eyes. Now, we may see ourselves as just the spectators of what's being portrayed on a screen, but there's something about that that draws in the mind and the heart and starts to take space in a person's life. And that's this captivating allure of sorcery that is really here at the heart of the judgment of Assyria. Nineveh is called the mistress of sorceries. Why mistress? 
Well, on the one hand, we think of the mistress as a harlot. You see, that type of spiritual captivation truly captivates people and makes them captors to this mistress of sorceries. Now, Assyria bore her guilt for dragging in other nations into this spiritual bondage, and that's that harlotry idea. What does a prostitute do? She makes her followers, her devotees, as worthless as she is. Because that's what a prostitute does, draws a person into immorality with the promise of satisfaction, only to leave the person dissatisfied, emptied of all value that they might have had. And that's the attraction of Assyria's magic. It was strong enough to enslave entire nations, strong enough to drag off families and rip them apart. And that's the idea in verse 4 of the term selling nations. As it's all linked here, we, we get the sense of human trafficking that results from this. Do you, do you see how that spiritual harlotry starts to play itself out in other evils? Do you, do you feel the weight of their international sins bringing the scales further and further down? Sorceries in this sense of, of this selling of nations has really an interesting connection. And it's the term sorceries itself. You might recognize this when I say the, the Greek translation of this Hebrew term as it's used in the Septuagint form of the Old Testament. And the term for sorceries is pharmakeia. Pharmakeia. Like pharmacy. Like pharmaceuticals. Like drugs. And the idea here of the sorceries that are in play within this seductive charm of this mistress of sorceries is the idea of magic potions, of drugs, drugs themselves. Anything that would alter the user's state of mind, that's the idea. Once you mix fantasy, the occult, hallucinations, addictive physical sensations, then there is no end to the misery for those families that are trying to pull their children away from that, trying to reconstitute their society, not just their family, but their entire nation. It's done. It's done. This is heavy on the scales of Assyria's international sins. Well, a final remark about the first half of the passage. I'm sure that you can appreciate, looking at all of this, this terrible impact of Nineveh's evil desires and strategies. There are wicked people who, when balanced on this divine scale of justice before the Lord, should expect severe justice. And that's exactly what we want to see, divine retribution for crimes against people and ultimately against God. So is it any wonder that when you read verse 5, it opens up with Yahweh's declaration from high up in heaven, far above all human affairs, and he says, Behold, I am against you. I am against the Ninevites. Well, you'd better believe he is. Will the all-wise, all-powerful, all-righteous judge of heaven and earth allow Nineveh's wickedness to continue forever? Well, the answer is no. The answer is no. Another question, is God measuring the weight of Nineveh's sins on his scales? Is he doing that? Because we're doing that. Nahum seems to be doing that. Is God doing that? And if he is weighing their terrible atrocities against people and against himself, 
Will Israel, from their vantage point, ever get to see it? Because Nahum is casting a near prophecy, something at least a generation ahead. And so that's the question. Will Israel ever see God balance out such evils with real justice? Or will they only hear about it from Nahum? Well, the answer is yes, they will see justice. But Nahum's generation itself, if they were to die in that time frame, they would not see it. They would need to trust that God would do it. And that's what we've really tried to build in our thinking as we look at all of Nahum's descriptions and his depictions and all of these prophecies that have actual historical results. We can be sure that God has promised and God has fulfilled. God will never betray his promises. He is always truthful. And here, Israel is going to need to hold on to their trust in him. And so when we get through verses 5 to 7, we're really looking in now through Nahum's window into divine justice, and we're seeing for the weight of Israel's or Nineveh's sins, now we start to see this balance come with divine retribution. We're seeing the other side of the balance in verses 5 to 7. And like Israel, we want to see how God's going to balance out these scales to bring Nineveh with its long list of international sins, the degree of international shame that fits their crimes against the nation. So behold, I am against you, declares Yahweh of hosts in verse 5. He begins this section the way he ended the last section of chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 13, says, behold, I'm against you. The language is identical. And so we're looking at declarations of divine judgment that run in parallel between the end of chapter 2 and this passage here in chapter 3. And that makes sense, right? Because in chapter 2, we're dealing with Nineveh's judgment within her walls. But in chapter 3, Nineveh is judged in full view of all the other nations. Those that were victimized now play that spectator role. They've got their binoculars out. And in this vision, they're seeing what God will do. Nineveh is judged in full view of the nations. That's a visible judgment that everybody needs. And so it's a tangible balancing of these scales, international sins with international shame. Well, you certainly don't want Yahweh to set himself against you. And this, even this idea of being set against, when God sets himself against Israel, and we read that through the prophets. It's always for the purpose of restoration. But when God sets himself against one of Israel's enemies, it is always for the blessing of Israel. But in cases like this, it's for the total annihilation of the people, the end of their bloodline, as you see in chapter 1, verse 14. Just take a look in Ezekiel alone, just examples of when Yahweh is against a nation. In Ezekiel 26, Yahweh declares that he's against Tyre. In Ezekiel 28, he says he's against Sidon. In other chapters in Ezekiel, he is against the Edomites. He's against Gog. This will result in their destruction. And so to be against the Ninevites is a severe thing. But again, the Assyrians are just one more 
name on a list of Israel's enemies. And they're about to be wiped out in that next generation. Look at how Nineveh is going to be judged according to verse 5. First, Nineveh is going to be humiliated before all the nations by being uncovered as naked. What does he say? I will uncover your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. To uncover, of course, refers to nakedness and the shame that would come with the vulnerability of being exposed in a way that would not be appropriate in any society, but it also relates to the idea of exile. To be uncovered uh, refers to be exiled. And you can believe it, any, anybody who is able to escape the bodies of among their fellow Ninevites for their international sins. And that's the idea there. They are now a disgraced, unworthy people that you just want to gawk at. Not that we should, but Nahum has you see them in their shame. And you see that that's a good negative example. It's kind of example that should help anybody, especially our children, as they're confronted with all levels of deception in their societies, in their generation, in their times. Don't end up like the Assyrians in their nakedness, being dragged away. Truly, there's probably many ways to say it, but one way to describe the, the, the chaotic, smoldering mess of the Assyrians is just say anyone looking from outside in would just see it as a big, smoldering trash pile of a people. That's really what you're looking at. All the other kingdoms, it says in that verse, the kingdoms that are watching would be whispering about Assyria's shameful fall, that they are now the exiles, naked among the people with, with no more power. Nineveh has lost its sovereign rule. That's out. Cultural superiority, majestic beauty, it's out. That's all gone. It's just a smoldering pile of corpses now just broken pieces of, of war machines. As far as the eye can see, that's all that the Assyrians are anymore. Well, a second way that Nineveh is going to be judged before the nations is in verse 6. It says, I will throw detestable filth on you and display you as a wicked fool and set you up as a spectacle. Well, the idea of detestable filth certainly has the idea of excrement and certainly the shame that would befall one who has to now wear it. So while they're exposed as naked before the nations, if there's anything on them, it's detestable filth. But detestable is a term that's often used in the Old Testament, like in 2 Kings 23, uh, to refer to spiritual idolatry idolatry itself. And 2 Kings 23 is really helpful because in verse 13 of 2 Kings 23, we see um, that it's recalled that Solomon, and here I quote, the king of Israel had built for Ashtoreth the detestable idol of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh the detestable idol of Moab, and for Milcom the abominations of the son of Ammon. But then later in 2 Kings 23, verse 24, the good and godly King Josiah he defiled those detestable idols. If they were already defiled, he defiled them by destroying them. We learn that he purged the idols and all the detestable things that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. So to be detestable is to represent 
the filth of your idolatry and to wear that as a stain on you like a garment of excrement. Terrible, terrible idea. But that's how the Assyrians are going to be memorialized. You see, for their international sins, we see the balance coming in perfect view from the international vantage point of their shame before the other kingdoms who remain kingdoms, while this is just a burning trash pile of a people. So in the end, Nineveh's former glories, her esoteric allure, all of her promises, they amount to nothing. What's next uh, said here is that God has displayed Nineveh as a wicked fool. The people are the epitome of the worst kind of fool that there is. A perverse, irrational person who is trapped in his own folly because of his arrogance. He doesn't even see how foolish he is. He's too proud to even have a rational thought about his situation. The wicked fool is the product of his own making. There's no better way to say it, so I don't know, my son's sitting in the front row. Maybe he should close his ears. The Assyrians' sin has made them stupid. The Assyrians' sin has made them stupid, and stupid Assyria is on display before the nations as a spectacle, something to behold a big dumb object lesson of what not to become. But that's the fact of the matter. That's who they are now. Now there's a third way that Yahweh is going to balance his scales of justice so that Nineveh's international sins receive their due penalty with international shame. And you see that in verse seven, the final verse of our section. Yahweh declares, and it will be that all who see you will flee from you. Flee from you. Notice the irony in that. Do you see it? There was a time that people fled from the Assyrians because they were running for their lives, because the Assyrians could do something, because they could harm them. It was out of the fear that if they didn't escape, then they would become their prey. They always had so much a surplus of victims that their prey was always before them. And so the last place that Nineveh's victims wanted to be was in Nineveh itself. That's just too easy to be in their jaws. But the Assyrians are now going to be a shamed exile community with no power and no reason to fear them any longer. And so those who trafficked souls now become slaves of other nations. What's there to fear? At the same time, it says that all the nations will flee the city. So what could that mean? If there's nobody left there to fear, what does it matter? Well, because God has struck it down in his wrath. And why would anyone want to be anywhere near the flashing, bright, glimmering, lightning strikes of God's wrath on this people? Get as far away from the wrath of God, lest his anger also fall on you. So the idea of fleeing ground zero is because of the wrath of God, not because of the people. They're just a big burning trash pile of a people. You don't want to get caught up in God's curse. That's the reason that anyone would flee this smoldering city. Nineveh has become the big object lesson of God's vengeance. Nobody in their right mind would want to be anywhere near it. So people will flee from the city, and when they do, they will say, Nineveh is devastated. Nineveh is devastated. You can imagine how Nahum's message just about half century before Nineveh's fall would be a wake-up call to any Israelite that is starting to get swept up in the charms of the occult, 
starting to find those titillating feelings of the magic potions that are being sold at the markets. Those who have abandoned Yahweh to go up to the high places of Israel that, that are getting interested in things that go beyond the scope of the law. Well, those are people who are on track to end their days like the Assyrians. But here's that big, dumb object lesson, that big, smoldering trash pile of a people. Now, notice the fourth line in verse 7. It says, who will console her? Who's going to console Nineveh now? Because at this point, the international sins are weighed so heavily that we see judgment that matches the crimes. And let me say this. Should anyone have any type of empathy for Hitler when he dies? No. Would anyone have a, a, a real heartfelt compassion for Stalin? No, this, is, this is not in our mainframe. It's not in our vocabulary. We, we would not console those types of mass murderers, those types of serial killers, and that's the case here. Who's going to console her? The state of Nineveh's devastation is so severe, such a ruinous overpowering by the mighty hand of God in his flashing sword that there's no legitimate way to console the Assyrians if you wanted to. What compassion could anyone have? Nobody in their right mind would ever want to step into that kind of empathy. No one would want to identify enough to, to try and sit in the grief of this fallen people. No. And so there's going to be no consolation, no empathetic wish by the nations that if it were in some way possible, we would save them from their misery. No, no reversing of the damages if we could. The severity of God's judgment is so severe, so final, that the next line is even more stark. God himself is drawn to ask a rhetorical question. Where will I seek comforters for you? Says Yahweh who knows all things, who controls all things. How bad must this divine, divine defeat be if God himself has to ask where he could possibly find anyone on the face of the earth who would want to comfort Nineveh? He is looking around and he finds no one to do it. Who would wish for their restoration? Well, the word comfort here is important, and we've seen it before. It's popped up in Nahum earlier, and it's the, the root of this idea of the comforters. Comfort, as you will remember, comes from the root word in Hebrew, naham. What does naham sound like? Sounds like the root of the name nahum, nahum. Nahum gets his name from this Hebrew word to comfort. Of course, his message is about comfort through judgment on the Ninevites. And so, as we look through Nahum's window onto the scales of God's justice, we see that Nineveh suffers uh, international shame in proportion to her international sins. And we see that the Assyrians will not be consoled. They cannot be comforted for uh, all that they have done against the nations and against God. And then from there, where do we see comfort? Comfort in their destruction. Comfort in the destruction of Nineveh. Now, that comfort goes back to chapter 1. So turn with me to Nahum 1, 
verse 15. It relays how Nineveh's tragic end is good news for Israel. Nahum 1.15. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. That verse relays how Nineveh's tragic end is good news for Israel. The announcement of Nineveh's coming judgment reveals a coming peace for Israel, a future enjoyment of God in a fuller sense once again. Never again will the vile one pass through Israel. He is cut off completely. Now, the beginning part of that verse you recognize. We've talked about it before here. But it connects with Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah 52, which is probably given 30 to 50 years before Nahum gives his prophecy of the coming judgment. So a little further back, and you're familiar with the line, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who proclaims good news, who announces peace. And we see that portrayed over and over in the New Testament to talk about the gospel of peace, the rescue, the propitiation of Christ, who will take the wrath of God on behalf of sinners who repent so that they don't make an end like the Assyrians or like the wicked of all time. And so the good news is good news of rescue by living in the power of the risen Messiah. And that's the message that we would see in the gospels. But there's a difference between Isaiah's prophecies and Nahum's prophecies because Nahum is the one that in just a few years, we're going to see that full judgment, that full wrath poured out on the Assyrians. But Isaiah, we're still waiting. We're still waiting for God to pour out his wrath on evildoers and how often Isaiah frames his future judgment on those evil nations that perpetrate international sins. How does he frame that judgment? He uses a phrase, in that day. In that day. A day that we are still waiting to see fulfilled. In that day, Isaiah would say that all of Israel's enemies will be exterminated. In that day, Israel will enjoy feasts for Yahweh to Yahweh. In that day, God's people will only know peace, only enjoyment in God. So for Isaiah, the judgment of evildoers is far off on the horizon. And we live in that tension of knowing that God is sovereignly in control over our world, and he is weighing sins and he is preparing judgment, but we're still waiting for that day, aren't we? The Assyrians are ancient history, literally. And so are their Babylonian captors. It's long gone. And so you may think that a message like this isn't for us. It's for people that needed it then. Good for them. Good for them. Yahweh gave them some hope. And in about 50 years' time, it's going to come to pass. Great. So we just read it as a little bit of historic literature. No. We need to live into those promises of God for that day that he will vanquish far greater threats, 
more global, worldwide, affecting every child of every family. And, and scripture helps us with this too, to give us a sense of the coming judgment in that day so that we'll find our comfort now. So indulge me as we conclude our time together. What I'd like to do is attempt to answer our initial question, which was, why do we today need another passage on current events seem to give us a perspective of ideologies of the world putting together evil forces and systems in new and fresh ways that seem to match a lot of biblical prophetic descriptions. And I don't know about you, but I need a lot of comfort as I see those things. As I, as I try not to dwell on those future realities, I still am surrounded by a world of sin, and it affects me. It affects each of us. We need comfort like Nahum's people needed comfort then. We need confidence to believe that for the international sins that we see perpetrated, there will be international shame. We're looking for God's balance of his divine scales of justice, aren't we? And so when we read Nahum 3, 1 through 7, let's read it also with that perspective of what is coming. Soon this world, greater than a city full of bloodshed, a world full of bloodshed, verse 1, is going to be avenged by the sound of God's whip, verse 2. By his earth-shaking gallop toward his enemies, he will crush them. Taking that from verse 2. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword, by God's almighty flaming sword and flashing spear. I'm taking that from verse 3. His enemies are going to lie strewn across the land as a pile of smoldering dead bodies. I'm drawing that from verse 3. In their naked shame, they will all be found to be filthy, wicked fools. Drawing that from verse 5 and verse 6. Now, there is prophecy that helps us to understand that. And it's prophecy that Isaiah forecasts and we see played out in future history in the book of Revelation. Yeah, we're not going to have a new Assyria, but there will be a new Babylon there will be a new world ideology that affects all governments in such a way that we would say the new Babylon is mounting up to do terrible atrocities, spiritual harlotry, Revelation 17, Revelation 18, Revelation 14, 16, all incredible prophecies to say that the nations will be deceived by future Babylon sorceries, harlotries that drag them in to drink out of the cup of immorality. And yet, it will be God that will crush Babylon, make Babylon drink the cup of the wine of his wrath, of his rage. That's Revelation 16, 19. And as we look to the future, let's take on Revelation 18, 10. Revelation 18, 10 says, Woe! Woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour, your judgment has come. God will zoom through when it is time to take this balance 
of sins to shame and just topple the whole thing into the lake of fire. Our confidence is that God will perform total, full, divine retribution on all evil, far beyond what we can even have, have glimpsed at from Israel's past with the destruction of Assyria. Imagine the new Babylon, what it will face, what all evil doers will face at the Battle of Armageddon, the pile of corpses that goes 180 miles wide. Did you know that Revelation 14, 20 says that the amount of blood that comes from the evildoers will be about four feet high with bodies piled up 180 miles wide. Can you imagine such a scene? Far beyond anything that we've seen, even taking a glimpse at Assyria. Our hope and our confidence is in God who rescues the righteous. If you're here and you do not know God as the one who saves the soul, rescues you from that world ideology of Nineveh or the new Babylon, then flee the city. Come to Christ. He wants to rescue you or he will trample you in his wine press. You need to understand this from Nahum. And you need to understand with that with a future perspective. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow might be a lightning quick sword flash coming for you to pile you up with the others. Our hope is in this beautiful warrior that will gallop against all evildoers and rescue us by trampling them down. If you're a believer that lives today with great concern over the future, great concern for your time where evil croaches in on you and your family and your life and your church and every sphere of your world now just seems to be pervasive darkness, then take comfort in the one who will rescue you. This is the great avenger, our God. Let's close our eyes in prayer. And as we do, I want to read one passage that I think is helpful from Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read Revelation 19, 1 to 3 as we bow in prayer, and then we'll go into prayer. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his slaves shed by her hand. Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Oh God, as we close in prayer, would you avenge the blood of your slaves so that what we see with our own eyes that we might see your salvation and your glory and your power triumph over all evildoers at your perfect time and your perfect way according to your perfect will. Would you be pleased to do this through the Lord Jesus Christ because he alone has the strength to crush your enemies in the great winepress of your wrath. 
And Lord, while you balance your scales of justice in our world today, would you so tenderly uphold us with your words of comfort like we've received in this judgment passage from Nahum chapter 3. Do comfort us in our time of affliction according to your word, and we will thank you with all our hearts through your Son.